What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode. It's your co-host, CK. And just before we get into today's episode, I want to just drop in a quick disclaimer that we will be discussing things that may be a bit triggering, the concepts like death and suicide. We don't get into them deeply, but they are mentioned, so we wanted to make sure that we put that disclaimer in here for anybody out there. Otherwise, thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you inside. I feel like my whole life, I mean, I grew up also as a, a male dancer in a time when like that didn't happen. I danced, I got to compete at, you know, the worlds and go to, on scholarship for school for that. And I think that there's just always been this sort of waiting, no matter what I've been through, like for a come out or a comeback based on these deaths and these griefs. And, you know, so many people, they didn't put pressure on me knowingly, but this idea of like, when are you going to come out or when are you going to make your comeback, you know, from this grief, from this, like, we want Addison back kind of thing. And I had it from myself. Um, and it just became this thing where over time in realizing that, you know, the grief wasn't something I could fix. I couldn't fix that. I didn't like that, you know, my brother and my father are gone or, or what's happened with my friend. As I, as I realized the only way through, you know, was to come through. And when I let go of this idea of a comeback of being this a functioning 19 year old Addison who can be on scholarship at school, running a nonprofit organization with 20 people under him who are all 20, yeah, up to 20 years older. Like I look back and I'm like, like great job, man. Like sending that inner child letter back, love you. I don't know how you did those things and like how you activated into that gear, but um, there won't be a comeback here. What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of your favorite podcast you've ever listened to. I swear it's the Modern Mask Ulinity Podcast, a space where we unpack everything men and masculinity. And today we have brought back on an incredibly special guest we're excited to have back on to talk about an incredibly interesting concept that I know for me all week I've been like, what is this? And that concept is grief. And he actually just wrote a book about it. But before we get into any of that, you know what time it is always? It's Moochek. What's going on, Coach Kyle? What's going on, my people? How are we doing today? Welcome to the show, Addison. How are you feeling, man? Oh, yeah. I'm I guess good. I probably I'm should good. have said it was Addison Brazil. I didn't even say his name. Uh, <laughs> welcome, Addison, to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you. No, you went right into flexing your your great microphone skills. Forgot me. <laughs> it's about me. I don't understand what the confusion is here, isn't it? As it I'm should the guest. be. As it should be. <laughs> All right, Addison, tell us about your mood today, my friend. Mood. Um, I um, it's funny. I have this like word for when I feel this way, and I, I you put it in the book. It's called dippy eggs. And it's like when eggs are like cooked enough that you can like dip them in the yolk, but they like, you know, they're cooked enough that they're not like poisonous. And that's how I kind of feel a lot lately with this whole book tour is like, it's safe to continue, uh, but it's dippy and we might get into some real stuff, you know, so dippy eggs. That's my mood. That's okay. my mood. Hey, listen, yeah. we're all here. We're here to add language to the possibility of what mood check could be. I am definitely <laughs> using dippy egg in the future. No, hands down for sure. It works perfectly. Leave it to Addison to have a like a dialed in mood check like that. Like <laughs> we're well, trying to yeah. avoid using good and like, oh, I'm okay. And we get dippy exactly. eggs. Let's go people. <laughs> because if I was like, well, it's this weird swirl of like 
grief and debilitating, you know, but if you just say <laughs> dippy eggs, people are like, they laugh at that part, but then they get it. And it's like, mm-hmm. when you explain it, they're like, okay. So it's like basically vulnerable without like going there every time you speak, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a, it's a Madisonism. It just I happened. love it. So relatable, so relatable. CK, Coach Kyle, what's going on, man? How are you doing today? You know, now I I gotta follow up Dippy Egg. So I'm trying to get creative in my head right now and use my language bank. I feel almost similar to Dippy Egg, to be honest with you. I feel the language I wanted to use was in between. I feel very much in like an in-between where uh, I'm not running on a great amount of sleep the last two days. So I'm feeling the physical exhaustion. But at the same time, there are so many areas that I committed to showing up to. So then I'm also working through the thoughts of making sure I show up there, but I'm, I'm like in this in between of like, Oh, I could go to sleep right now, but Oh, I got to be up right now. Like it's that back and forth. So I'm, I'm going to use in between. That's my mood check today. I'm in between moods. Hey, okay. I'll follow that up with, uh, I'm, 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 I feel very, um, curious and attentive. And I think that is just the, the nature of this conversation. I just, I think I, I'm in the presence of somebody who is a deep feeler and is so good at their words. And anytime I, you know, can be around people who are so good at expressing themselves, I feel like my attention wants to be so much more attentive, especially in the conversation. Like, I mean, I'm going to be the first, I haven't gone through any kind of grief in my life either. So this kind of also feels like a little bit of an opportunity to, you know, start to maybe think about what would feel like, or, you know, so I just think that, you know, I'm very curious. I feel very attentive. Um, and I'm just excited. Anytime we get a chance to hang out with Addison Brazil is a, is a good time for me. So, uh, that's my mood today. That's how I'm feeling. Love it. That's a great mood check, man. That's a great mood check. So to, to get into today's conversation, I wanted to first preface with Addison has been on this podcast before. Um, and he short, he shared his story in length, especially some of the, the more painful parts of the story. And today we want him to kind of introduce to this audience that hasn't heard him, but we do encourage you to go back if you are curious or you want to know more about that story and you're like, whoa, that was so fascinating. He has come on here, go back, check it out. Um, but today for today's audience who knows nothing about your story, Addison, um, what is the Sparks Notes version of, you know, your introduction, who you are, um, and a little bit about your story? Absolutely. And just to give a full idea of who I am, as you were saying that about being in the presence of someone deeply connected, my brain immediately panned out in the room that you're just sitting in front of a mirror as you said all of those nice things. So it's like, just so people know before we go there, um, you know, that's also how my brain works. I'm, I'm equal parts find the funny and honor the journey. And I have to be as, as we'll see, but um, yeah, my name's Addison Brazil. I, uh, never, never intended to be in the mental health space or the grief space or a disruptor in in any way. Um, But during the course of my 20s, I found myself just to the left of death three times. I um, lost my brother to cancer. I found my father after his suicide and then went out in the world and tried to fix my grief and thought I had pretty much and thought I had succeeded at that, Um, went out to celebrate and on the way home, got into a very bad accident that killed a dear friend of mine, uh, left me relearning to walk with a brain injury and pretty much relearning how to be in the world. Um, And it felt kind of like, I always say, like uh, trying to run Windows on Mac. It just, my operating system had completely expired for what that I had been through. Um, And from that point on, it was just sort of this never ending experiment in resilience and surviving and um, 
I ended up just having to navigate what life looks like all in my 20s um, within compounded grief and the mental health challenges that come with that. And also balancing all the magic, love, awe, and hope that I like so gratefully got to be a part of during that time as well. Um, I think it's important to always say that, that like the contrast for me is what really created the experience. You know, I did deal with these, you know, very hard, hard, terrible things, but it was, as we have seen in the last podcast and we'll see today, it was deeply connected and surrounded by community. And that, that really was what made the difference um, and makes it possible for me to look back in retrospect and, and hopefully help a few other people entering grief club as uh, we'll talk about later. Mm. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you for sharing again in, in uh, uh, detail. And I just always want to basically repeat back to you what you always say to us is just thank you when we honor the fact that you are sharing that journey with us. So thank you. And I think I want to follow up with a quick question there is uh, outside of all of these experiences and the grief club book and, you know, the, the mental health space that you've had, you know, who is Addison? Like what, what does he enjoy? Mm. What does he get up to? How does he spend his time? Yeah. You know, it's funny. It's like I said, you know, it really is that tagline, which I hate to have a tagline as a human being, but it really does kind of encompass me. It, it has to be. And I've been having conversations with the people that I work with and my book team and just pretty much everyone as I move forward right now, entering this grief space, it has to be for me that equal balance of find the funny and honor the journey. I'm totally down. I, I love being deeply connected and, and bringing what I've been through into my work, whether that's through fiction or nonfiction or, or in any way, but it's got like, I have to find the funny or there's just like, I can't clock in, you know, for the day for life at all. So, um, it's funny because I, I can be the person who understands your deepest, darkest, you know, and, and can be your best friend in that way. But I will also come for you and I will find your exact sense of humor and I will come for you at funerals and inappropriate places. <laughs> and well, I won't even have to make jokes anymore. You'll just look at me and you'll know, I know it's like, why like I'm careful about getting too close like with people even before interviews because if I make a joke then everyone the whole time is going like kids in church and and to be honest that is my favorite feeling I'm, I'm here in Australia right now with my sister we haven't seen each other for three years because of the lockdowns and you know that that sums up our relationship those two kids in church and I pretended to be the one that was always like stop it stop it but because I also loved that I then turned around and did it to everybody else I could but my sister's pretty much the one person who has that power over me where she's already in my thoughts. She knows what the joke is. We know we're not going to make it, but it's already been made just by being. So um, that's honestly like that, like laughing till I cry is like so much of the go-go juice of getting through all of what I just shared. You know, it really is. It's just like being deeply connected and and, you know, I am single. So if we want to go into like long walks on the beach and like the movies <laughs> and what I like, you know, <laughs> No, um, but I do, as you guys know, probably just from Instagram and that I am kind of addicted to sunsets um, and large bodies of water and like just hunting those moments where it's just that connection of feeling so a part of something, but like, like you are so small in it, like the ocean is just, I've never loved anything more than I'm more terrified to enter. Like I would never mm. enter the water by myself, like Jaws plays in my head consistently. At the same time, though, I do everything to be at an ocean 
at least twice a week every week so it's like mm -hmm. this weird like let's just stare at that big scary thing and know that <laughs> everything we think matters about ourselves doesn't <laughs> and that thing would swallow us <laughs> so it's cool to just be a part of it and, and respect so I like nature and I like laughing and that's my uh that's my final answer <laughs> beautiful beautiful and I resonate deeply with that that beach like I want to be on the beach I want to see the water but like you put me on a boat like I don't know 50 yards out and I want to go back like get me out of here <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not I'm not here for this uh definitely jaws definitely anything that I uh, it's like the big deep unknown but there's mm -hmm. so much beauty in that, that I think is just, we don't see it as that way. It's just water and it connects with us. So I resonate deeply with that. So I'm glad you shared that. Yeah, very unknown. I, I have no interest in making a billion dollars and going to space. Just so everyone knows. <laughs> like, Space is like the ultimate anxiety attack to me. Like just let's go float and do nothing. All right. I've, I've, I've literally referred to myself as a land baby many a times. I like being on ground. I like being on land. Things that are very high don't like it. Things that are very deep in water don't like it. Keep me on the ground. Um, I feel like I have the best chance of survival on the ground. So <laughs> I'd rather run great. from something than try to swim from something. That's, let's put it that way. Me too. Me too. Amen. Amen. So let's get into the conversation today. So we got a bit about who you are, what you're up to, uh, your joy of laughter and having fun. And so, you know, I think that someone who's gone through everything that you have gone through and then now has uh, on the back end of a lot of it written a book about all of those experiences and how to move through that. You know, you went from, to being from someone who was having things happen to them to someone who is now having things move through them and someone who is taking responsibility uh, in a leadership position in this field of grief. And something that we're very curious about, and I think the audience is as well, is how did this transition even come to be? Like, did was there a point you can remember where you thought to yourself, like, this is going to be me? Was that in the middle of the journey, three quarters? Did it ever really even happen? Like, what was that experience like for you, making that transition from happening to, to now it's all moving through me? Yeah, you know, I mean, one of my biggest things is, is that it, it is a daily relationship. And the one thing that I don't ever want to like sort of perpetuate is like if because this is the way I thought 10 years ago was like, if I'm a good sport, I'll like then like have this moment where like I write a book or a movie and I get an award and like I did it. I checkmarked grief. Right. Um, so and I still sort of want that. And I think that's why I'm in a little bit of a grief process myself since the book came out, because I think I mm. secretly thought it would fix even though the book is about not fixing grief which we'll get into but <laughs> yeah. I think you always are just hoping that you've done the work you know and that you might be released in a greater sense so um my honestly like it's not that it's selfishness but everything that I've ever done whether it's the nonprofit organization for for brain tumors in memory of my brother or the mental health startup or now you know responding to the grief book it it comes in a selfish way just from like tossing and turning and and not being able to sleep like i when i know something so intimately that i've been through that feels almost impossible where i've almost ended up in a suicidal moment myself because of it's very hard for me to like operate in the world knowing that other people are probably going through that possibly with less privilege possibly with less community around them definitely in the middle of a pandemic possible world you know it's just been the rules changed and there's this thing that happens to me where I can either just like be uncomfortable and feel like I'm not helping anybody or I can be uncomfortable and at least feel like I'm doing something that I'm showing up in the space and that 
you know, I'm saying something, I think it's so important, whether it's like LGBTQ rights, grief, men's mental health, like any of these spaces, we don't really have the time for for people to be silent and I'm comfortable and I'm ready and I'm able. So, you know, I, I wanna show up to that. And then, like we said earlier, before we started recording, that's a daily relationship though. I wake up and I'm like, oh no, like, you know, this might be hard to get through if we talk about certain things. And I have all the normal, like, I'm gonna, you know, burn the book and cancel the interviews. And, you know, I have all of that still. So there's no check. I wish I could be like, I'm that guy, you know? And even when you say leader, I like cringe. I'm like, no, 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 no. Like I'm just in the grief club arena. Like I, mm. I'm one of the guys and people are like, okay, but naturally by writing a book and showing up in the way you do, <laughs> right. like you understand the term. Right. And I'm like, you know, it's that weird thing where you just you hear celebrities being interviewed and you're like, stop pretending you don't know that you're the best actress of all time. And then, mm. but then, you're like literally always like you know denouncing your book's value because you're just like <laughs> I don't know what it is you know so fair fair I appreciate that and I think that that's such an, an important piece to take with any experience is that it is just a daily relationship and that's how you speak to grief too and even in our mm -hmm. initial conversation mm -hmm. I just reminded it's you just speak so deeply to it being a daily experience There's a specific language that you use that we would like to you to discuss just briefly is the difference between I think the comeback and then the come through. And I'd love if you could give context to what you mean by that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing also as a, a male dancer in a time when like that didn't happen, I danced, I got to compete at, you know, the worlds and go on scholarship for school for that. And I think that there's just always been this sort of waiting no matter what I've been through like for a come out or a comeback based on these deaths and these griefs and you know so many people they didn't put pressure on me knowingly but this idea of like when are you going to come out or when are you going to make your comeback you know from this grief from this like we want Addison back kind of thing and I had it from myself um, and it just became this thing where over time in realizing that you know the grief wasn't something I could fix I couldn't fix that I didn't like that you know my brother and my father are gone or, or what's happened with my friend, as I, as I realized the only way through, you know, was to come through. And when I let go of this idea of a comeback of being this, a functioning 19 year old Addison who can be on scholarship at school, running a nonprofit organization with 20 people under him who are all 20, yeah, up to 20 years older. Like I look back and I'm like, like, great job, man. Like sending that inner child letter back, love you. I don't know how you did those things and like how you activated into that gear, but um, there won't be a comeback here. Cause it would also sort of denounce the losses and how they etched into me. It'd be like trying to get the Titanic back without it hitting the iceberg. It did, it made contact, you know? So even if you patch it, even if you, you know, that's there, it's it's the marks in a dining room table when you've written on paper, it's, it's, it's there. So I, um, it was it was more likely to be a suicide than a comeback so i decided to come through with all of it and if that made certain people uncomfortable then that's where it had to be because otherwise i would not be you know mm -hmm. um so yeah i'm all about the come through like i'm very careful because in speaking about grief i see the traps of like almost laying limited beliefs like i just you know, sort of corrected mm. that, like, I'm not now a certain type of person. And then now I'll correct this, mm. that, you know, that that's great. That I don't even know that that's possible. And I don't 
I never wanted to get up on stages and say something that would sort of be a quick fix, a cheap fix, make people feel better, give them hope. But then they're like, what about this real fucking life swirl and there's no stages, it's a mess and this is what I'm going. And I'm like, oh yeah, I know all that, but that would overwhelm you. <laughs> and I didn't want to say any of that, mm. you know? So it's um, it's something I got used to dealing with and supporting directly all the families with brain tumors and memory of my brother. There's a very delicate balance about being the one who's handing over those necessities or interacting with those families or honoring those families because I'm very aware of what I represent and I know what I've been through and I know what the experience was and I know how it ended for my brother, you know? And so to interact with a child who also has, you know, a brain tumor and be the brother of someone who's passed and, ooh, and I'm maybe not gonna be able to do this. But like, you know, like there's there's this, I don't know, this, this thing you can only learn from being in real life and knowing something so deeply and, and trying to just navigate how much of it you can give, how much should be the natural experiences of others and you know what can you offer? And that's why I really came to, let's just stick with being compassionate, kind and curious and let's experiment every week. And then if offering doesn't work from the book, it doesn't work, get rid of it. It's mm -hmm. meant, you know, this is meant to be a living, breathing thing. I want to be the one that helps you, opens the window, let's throw that page out, let's just get rid of it. You know, like if it does not truly serve you, I in no way for my ego or my authorness need it to work for you. You know, it actually helps me more when people message me and say, this is kind of shit for me and this is why, you know? And, and then I'm like, oh yeah, I didn't really think about it that way because I am only the expert of my own experience. You know, I'm just, like I say, in the arena, I'm not really studying grief from above. I'm navigating just three very complex processes that does feel like a bachelor's, a master's and a PhD in life experience of grief, but it's still only my own, you know? And so how that lines up with other people is always very interesting to me, um, but it, it opens up a lot of heavy conversations. So that's, you know, it's, it's finding that balance of, of being able to do that. All right, folks. It. So that's the podcast. Thank you so yeah, much. Okay. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you know, I, I really wanted to go to the beach. So I just thought, hey, if Perfect. I give them everything they want in 30 seconds. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Yeah, this, he had his paintbrush out. I'm not going to lie. He's painting pictures all over the place. It's you know, but you guys, you guys always set the layup up. So that's wow. the thing. It's just, you know, otherwise it'd be a, it can be a trap of like 45 minutes of, and then my dad, like, you know, and it's because right. it, people can be fascinated by the story and I fall into that trap. But I am so excited today that we're, that we're talking about, you know, what can come of it and what I've actually created, you know, um, and, and that so. Back to you guys. I mean, I had a follow-up question there that kind of came up for me. And I, I think a lot of people who are listening and myself can, can relate. In the, in the space of grief, you talk about this arena. I think that one thing that I feel about the arena itself is that, you know, when you are dealing with someone who might be going through grief and stuff like that, there is a hopelessness to the whole experience, you know, like it, the advice that's given from the grief space is like, there's, there's not the right words, man. There's not the right words. There's not. So everyone, even the helpers feel so helpless. And I think what you're, what you're doing, what you're allowing is you're entering the conversation, not just shutting it down, being like, Hey, we can't just be like, Hey, you know, cause the person who's going through it is looking for answers in the world is like, there is no answers for this, man. You know, there is, mm -hmm. it's just deal with it, you know, and it, time heals all is the only real which is very valid. It's a good piece of advice. And it does, you know, ultimately heal and like serve that space. But what I love about what you're doing is you're, you're giving a little bit more to that concept. 
Yeah, I'm put, I'm drawing in the air for everyone listening an asterisk to time heals all wounds. Mm-hmm. Time and commitment to awareness and badass action over Amen. a long period of time heals all wounds. And and doesn't heal it. It puts you in the best possible position to honor all your wounds. Mm. You know, even like I'm just wow, I'm really careful today, but I just really don't want to say anything that would kind of make me you know, when I'm talking about grief, like I know all the things I've listened to and I sort of like cringe and I'm like, yeah, but like, it's not, you know, there's just, we're just wired. And like, you'll see it in this conversation today, even with the three of us, we will constantly go back to a result. We Mm -hmm. want there to be a result. We want even in my story, in my career, because I like did a book and when we're talking about death, you want to go back to this point where it's all a check mark, you know, and then you kind of get to continue from there. And it's just like, this is like, the basis of the book, the reason it's written is like to literally every week, like just rehammer. This is a process. There's not going to be right or wrong. I literally have put gray space throughout the entire book because I want people, the whole point is the willingness to live in that gray space. There's no right or wrong. There's just the truth. And that truth can really comfort you. It can make you really uncomfortable, but that's the space we now live in. So are you willing to write or scribble in gray space and know that it's not permanent? It can never be permanent. Even if it's in ink, it's not permanent. You don't have to feel the way you felt on the week two experiment in that gray space in three weeks and you won't, and you probably shouldn't, you know, if you're continuing to grow and change. So it is, it's interesting too, because I've written this completely from my own experience. And then I sort of am like, God, I love science though. And like, there's a lot of mindset, you know, there's a lot of what's been passed down through me. I've had a lot of investors that I feel like are my personal shareholders that made sure I was in a position of resilience to do anything in my life. And I owe everything back to them. And there's a very long acknowledgements page at the back of the book that I like to go back and read consistently. Because for me, in many ways, I do feel like sort of a corporation, like an IPO that all these people have invested in me. And I do think about that when I'd rather just check out when I'm not respecting and honoring how I've changed and grown and shown up. And I make one mistake and it's like, okay, you're canceled. Like, and I'm like, okay, wait, like there's investors. Like these people have taken time out of their lives to house you and love you and support you and make sure that that when the day came, you could show up fully. And so um, I really, um, I really just appreciate that. But what I was going to say is, you know, so you said hopelessness and, I've always had this weird thing with hope. I call it my hope monster. It's in the book where I just, I never felt like that was something you could run out of, um, you know? And I have a fellow writer, I've just read the book and it's it's being published so the world will wait, but it's basically a whole book about how we can't really run out of hope. You know, that's a mindset. It's like, you can't, just like you couldn't run out of sad or, you know, like, and and it's it's funny because I'm going, oh, I really love the science and I wish science would show up and then, this book has come out called The Grieving Brain, which I suggest everybody reads alongside mine. And it's actually just about the science of grief. It's fascinating. Mm. All these things have existed, but no one has put it in that exact way. Um, it's by Mary Frances O'Connell. And I just feel like it's like, oh, I wish like I went back and, and grabbed all the science. And then this book came out, literally went into pre-audible and now is out March 17th, right after mine. So it's like, and as I'm reading it, I'm going, oh my God, this is like the science behind what I was saying from a human perspective from within the arena. And then now I'm pre-reading this book on hope. And it's like, I'm like, can see the bundle of just like, hey, we might actually really be off to a really good start if we put these three books together. That in Brene's new book, um, which is basically a dictionary of emotions, Atlas of the Heart. You know, it's just, it's kind of magic. 
the way that that starts to show up. But um, but yeah, I just with the hopelessness part, I do. Oh, I always felt uncomfortable telling people that you know I I don't believe you can run out of hope. I don't think hope can be lost. It, you know I think and and Catherine Hammond is her name. Um, she's on Instagram and she's publishing this book, and you know she refers to hope as a wellspring, and that has just really resonated with me and it's it's kind of what makes me sort of this wild character in life is that like I despite all those things I'm such a hope monster that I'm constantly feeding and nurturing my own hope monster within me and it's just like it's so weird it's like I think I've said this before but one of those inflatable things that you punch down mm. and it like comes <laughs> back up and everybody's like stay down man like stay down stop showing that you can navigate challenges you know but there's just there's this hope that there's going to be a deeper connection out of it, that there's, that something is going to come out of this, you know, that really teaches me why I'm here and why I'm, why I'm getting to keep loving and learning and growing, even though those closest to me have not, there's, there's just that, you know, that hope of, I don't know, that childhood magic returning in a certain way. And it has in a lot of ways, the more I've released it and worked through it. I'm like, did I answer your question? What does it matter? Who can say? <laughs> we don't know. I think Tweet I us. think <laughs> I was I was I was I was I was listening to a um, a Gary V little snippet where he um, he talked about he thinks that so many people think that money is going to solve all problems and you know extreme money will help and then he re reframes it and goes, I think extreme perspective is almost mm. more beneficial, more helpful. Yeah, uh, it's so weird. I just had this thought last night, like inheritance is not always monetary and the inheritance that matters is definitely not monetary the inheritance of like I always say I inherited the responsibility to my mental health when my dad died by suicide you know I inherited this ultimate respect for my body and the way that it works from the accident and losing my friend and relearning to what like there's so much that you're inheriting in those shocking experiences that take months to years you know to realize what you've really inherited but mostly it's it's this thing that you can't go back on where you have to process and honor what's actually happening. And that is as cringy as this is my grief club members because we don't like to silver line the muddy, you know, realness of real life grief. There is a gift in that, you know, just like money from inheritance is helpful but not what we would have asked for. And there's a very big distinction between, and I did this for a long time. I would not get on board with anything. Like everything happens for a reason. Like those that, like, I was like, no, 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 no. Like I'm not getting X because this happened. Like that's, I can't get on board, but there is a world where it's like, you know, if I didn't ask, and this is a lot of coaching, but if I didn't ask for this and this was going to happen anyways, am I able to recognize the benefits? Am I able to recognize that because of these things, I show up with way more empathy? that I'm deeply involved in the charity work I do, that I'm way more connected and, and prioritize different things. And that I also make mistakes and I'm a fully feeling, fully flawed man on earth. You know, it's just, but can, can you recognize where, wow, if I hadn't been so intimately close with childhood cancer, you know, would I have the, the wellspring of empathy that I have? Would I go and make sure that families who have basically next to nothing and are dealing with brain tumors at Christmas or over the holidays have what they need? No, and like, so I can see the, the gift in it without it being like, everything happens for a reason. And so we're good, again, looking for that result, which I think that statement feels like, and that's why I was sort of allergic to it. 
but it can be like, oh, this opened up this and I was able to show up fully in that. And I may not do that again tomorrow. And it may have been too intimate for me to go into helping or solving, but you know, it's, it's always kind of the process. And I think my dad, like just, I always say that like my inheritance from my dad was just this absolute responsibility for there not to be another generation of men who do not acknowledge and take action based on mental health. It was non-negotiable. It was like, I can, it never happened, but I feel like a lawyer sat me down and the reading of the will was, you now cannot pretend that you don't know how important mental health is. Mm. Good luck. You know, it's just like, it was like, that was my, you know, inheritance moment of being like, wow. So, you know, if I stumble in this, I really did it knowingly in a way that the last generation maybe didn't. I'm very, very aware. In fact, you cannot be more aware, you know, than with what I went through. So yeah, I just, um, with grief, I think inheritance and all that stuff. And it also, hear all these stories about how, you know, in, in my own, which I won't get into, but you know, how inheritance and just that whole wills that can tear families apart. It tears people apart of, you know, what, what are you getting out of death? Why? And I think it's just a very, human human response to grab whatever you can you know like if you were drowning it's like you're just trying to grab something you're not thinking oh I'm grabbing their life draft or counting and going there's enough things for everybody but I you know you're just sort of in that that fight or flight of this is the worst feeling I've ever felt and I don't want to feel it and it feels like someone's breaking my heart through my ribs in live time and you just sort of go into these modes and I've witnessed it you know, over and over again. And I've been able to sort of step back and go, wow, grief is a beast. And it's literally a beast that's living inside of your chest, that's moving you and, and having you say things and, and literally like experiment, you know, but there's a real danger because everyone around you doesn't know that you're experimenting and that you're in that. So mm -hmm. there you feel like they're cementing, you know, that's who you are now. That's what you said. That's, mm -hmm. you know, you get caught up in these things and we almost need to post it on our head for up to 10 years. It says like, if I'm wearing this, I'm grieving mm -hmm. and everything I'm doing, how I'm operating the world is all in relation to having to come face to face with loss in a way that I never wanted to, you know? Mm -hmm. So I don't like this either. I don't like having anger eruptions. I don't like having flashbacks while I'm driving. I don't, you know, so there's so much that goes into that. And, and I feel like, you know, with empathy and compassion, both for ourselves um, and mostly for ourselves, because it's not always going to come from the others. It's like, it's got to come from, from you over time where it's like, can you be compassionate to when you mess up? Not just the results of someone else saying that it was okay, but being uncomfortable in the process of sometimes now in relation to grief, I do things that make me feel like I don't know myself at all, you know, and becoming comfortable with that um, and able to respond to it, I think is just, gosh, something that I wish somebody just hooked me and took me aside 10 years ago and said, because trust me, there's no one meaner than Addison to Addison. I've, I've broken up that fight many a time. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that first 10 minutes when you wake up, you know, you're just like not there yet and you just go for the jugular and you're like, damn boy, it's 6 a.m. and you're trying to kill me. Like, you know, we got a whole day. We got a whole day, man. <laughs>
process and the grieving process. This term of the process has come up a couple of times. Um, and, you know, in preparing for this conversation, you know, I, I was talking to a really, really good friend and, you know, I was just kind of picking her brain about, you know, well, what do you think about grief and, you know, these kind of things. And we came to this idea of me being an athlete. I always kind of relate things back to sports. And it was like, when you go to physio and you hurt something on your arm or your leg or you break something, there are these markers in the therapy session, right? In this, in this rehab session. And this marker leads to this and this marker leads to this. And you kind of know like, okay, I'm trending in the right direction. I'm trending in the right direction. You know, you spoke about, you know, this book that's coming out with all the emotions, understanding the emotions. Like what are some of the like emotional markers along the way that either show you that you're regressing in your grieving process or progressing, or is there even a continuum? Like, is there any type of like emotional marker that you think that you're like, if you're going through this and you're here, you're probably this. And I don't know if your book shares this, but I wanted to kind of pose that question to you and see what you thought. Yeah, I was like, he's either really teeing me up, like taking one for the team right now, or you know, there's a whole section, like one of the main experiments, there's a week of no measuring and there's a week of, a week of no comparing. Because um, one thing I have to say in retrospect is like measuring my own grief internally or my own quote unquote progress, which again, getting away from the idea of, it, of there being progress, but just that it's process and how how able you are to navigate that process. I mean, I'm not even using words that would make it sound like you're happy to do so. You know, it's just like, so there's a lot of experiments in there where, again, if someone's telling you something, which is why I really hold strong, both in the mental health and the grief space as like a peer, you know, as sort of like this, I always love this, like this Ron Weasley, like, in, in my memoir, I know I'm literally Harry. I'm literally the nonfictional boy who lived. I have a scar and I was to the left. Like, you know, so like in that book, and this book was born out of writing my memoir. It was sort of the what I can give to people now. And that bigger book is still in process um, and will be published much later. But um, I guess like the idea that there's, that there's progress is just it's so hard because also like if you can do it in a healthy way there's nothing more important than to give yourself you know a pat on the back and kudos as you're like wow you're really navigating this like wow like but it's it's without the idea like okay good i'm done now so that it's like it can continue in that way um i do think that so like in the book i am um, i'm you know, I put this week of experimenting with no comparing for a week and no measuring. And instead of going front matter and explaining why I'm doing that and, you know, how it doesn't serve somebody, um, which I'm sure like all the coaches are nodding or anyone who's been coached, you know, we know that, you know, that comparing and, and critically measuring doesn't really serve us when you really look at it with a magnifying glass, but it's in the life experience of doing it, of going over the course of a week or two weeks or three weeks and, and committing to not doing it that you go, oh, wow, how would measuring have served me here? How would trying to track this have served me in terms of honoring their memory, honoring what I'm trying to do? Um, it's very difficult though, because there's a sense of measurement from society. I mean, it's like two days of bereavement leave for some companies up to maybe a week. Like, so they are sort of measuring what I hope we're considering a mourning period, not a grieving, because I think grief is lifelong. I think that's sort of, that's how I'm trying to show up is be like, hey, you know, grief club exists. It starts the day it starts and it ends never. And something I make a point to say every time I talk, because it's indelicate as that can feel to to hear, um, someone not saying it to you can lead to a lot bigger of a fall later, 
you know, mm -hmm. when you're expecting for so long for there to be this quote unquote progress for this to end for this, you know, to, um, unrealistic to expectation type of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it, it sort of gets built in. So it's like, if you have this sort of idea in your head where, you know, you're going back and instead of it just being this big monster, that's grief. And it's since the loss and it's like these blanket statements, it's like, okay, but this came up today and I definitely measured and, and people don't talk about this a lot. And I have a very loving, open family. There's also just like a natural, almost competitiveness to shared grief. If you've lost someone, and I know everybody who's dealt with grief is going to nod, like, you know, you just you call your mom for support and she's grieving too. And it's just like, you actually feel like a little bit like there's competitiveness. And this is something that I'm very lucky that like we could really communicate around. And because it was how I felt, it wasn't that it was happening or it wasn't intentional. It was just how I felt, you know, that I was in my own house after my brother died, everybody was grieving equally and had a right to grieve equally. And so there's become this competitiveness and, and in the wrong setting, I can see very quickly how that turns into everyone measuring, everyone comparing and everyone sort of leaning into a victim type mindset for the attention that they need rather than it just being, hey, this is a process that's gonna be different for everybody every day. No one's ahead, no one's the strong one. No, you know, there's, we see all these labels come out when someone, you know, oh, Addison's a strong one because he planned the funeral and started the charity. Addison was also the one who lost his mind at the funeral and could not be consoled. Like, it doesn't work like that. It's just, no, well, Addison's very A-type and goes into work mode when he doesn't want to deal with something. Mm -hmm. But because mm -hmm. you get you get completely, you know, what's the word, paralyzed by a, a situation like this, you think, oh, he's doing well because he's able to do blank. But really, I'm just going into overdrive to not feel anything. So it's just like, it's just funny because no matter it's sort of like the limit does not exist no matter how many times you go down that rabbit hole comparing and measuring it's just not going to help it's just mm. not going to and but you can't tell people that they have to do experiments and they have to see mm -hmm. and learn from themselves because if it's like a you don't in grief you don't need anyone wagging a finger at you you don't need the extra anything especially if it you know if it's something that's really starting to consume your life so again, that's why it's like, oh, these are offerings. And it's just this idea of like, can I make you too smart to be dumb? Can I help you to see as your friend that like when you touch fire, it burns you. But if I tell you that you're going to be like, well, I'll figure it out for myself. Nobody tells me what fire is. I'm grieving. Like, okay, I, I've been that guy. I've been there. I know, mm -hmm. you know, but I'm like, okay, let's go over there. <laughs> let's go over there every day for a week and you do what you want. And if it burns, then I'm sure you won't touch it again. And I don't have this like sort of hierarchy in my place in this relationship of having told you so anything, mm. you know, so it's uh, it's very hard to do. My coach, I remember Jennifer Merrifield, always a shout out, also Toronto Canadian. Because um, she's she really the person you met on the plane. Yeah, the one on the yeah. plane from the Love last podcast. Story. And she just she just, every time I look back at it, I, I look back and there's so much of her in this, obviously, in our work together to get me through this process. Uh, I think that's important to say too, that I did not come to any of these conclusions naturally. I'm not like the chosen grief child. I invested heavily, sometimes almost to bankruptcy for my my mental health and my well-being and my mindset training. Um, but obviously the gift from that um, created what I consider to be my personal wealth. But but yeah, there's just so much of those like basic mindset, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, those basic mindset concepts that are only basic until you try to apply them in real life. 
And then, you know, it's like lecture and lab in university. It's like, I was always, I can, I'm very intelligent in that way. I can, and I have a photographic memory and almost like a stenographer style memory. I can remember everything everybody says and how they said it. And nobody wants to be in a relationship with me because of it. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, the, the, the lab part, I had to start actually splitting up my sessions where I had two weeks away from my coach at a time because I needed to apply them in real life. And when that's, I get conceptually how something doesn't serve me. But in that moment, when you're coming up against 30 years of programming and someone's triggering you or you're in a place to be triggered, mm. you know, it's, it's very different. So that's when I wrote this, I didn't want it to be something you could read in a weekend. I didn't want it to, to have this sort of spiritual consumerism appeal that we see nonstop. It's not a retreat. It's not a flash sale. It's not a one weekend course that gets you out of grief. Like it literally is inviting me into your life for a year and it's going to be slow. And most of the learning is going to be on you and with you, you know, but I'm going to be there to kind of guide you and say, Hey, again, at the beginning of the next week and, you know, and go along the journey with you, but I'm going to keep pushing you into like, you know, that Harry Potter spot, that front spot, this is your journey. I'll go with you into the dark hollows of whatever it is. Um, but, um, but this is your journey. Hmm. There's so many things to pull out there. And, you know, it's funny, I can feel my man to do box checklist vibe kicking in hard. As you mm -hmm. express this, I can feel that urge to be like, hold on, no, like, come on, Addison, there's got to be something you can give me. So uh, I actively try to pursue it's about the process and that, you know, it's the journey. And I actively try to remind myself of that every single day. But I do find myself some, sometimes still very stuck and lost in the conditioning of I need, to, I need steps to go about everything that I do ever. Now, I think one of the steps that comes into play that I only know of through, I guess, my own Google searches is the seven stages of grief, right? And you obviously know those very well. Now, I don't want to necessarily touch base on those yet, but I do want to get maybe your perspective on how you understand those seven stages. And if you feel that they're applicable, because from your perspective, if I'm gathering it is those steps aren't necessarily, I guess we'll call it the right way or to go about it because then they say there's a finite result. So what would you say is your perspective on the seven stages? Right. And I think we've really moved away from that. And I have to say too, like I am genuinely surprised and excited by sort of the grief community I've entered into. I was doing a lot of speaking and working obviously in mental health and like I know that community very intimately who's really showing up as far as like the social space and speaking and you know got very very deeply embedded into that community and and now that's happening with grief you know and it's like this weird thing where it's like well I wrote a grief book too is there going to be a competitiveness and it's like no there really isn't you know there's so much that I'm learning every day so I it is weird but there is so much available again you have to mm. consciously consume which is another experiment you know, within the book is focusing on conscious consumption, you know, be really aware of, of who you're listening to and what they're offering you. When I say all that, I, I definitely don't want anyone to feel like, oh God, this is just like honoring. And it's like the deep dark of the rest of my life. Um, I'm hitting that hard because so many people are going to try to market and take vulnerable people's resources on the idea that there can be a fix. Mm. I do every single week of this book, will result in your ability to create a tool that you will use when things come up from that experiment. And mm. that's sort of like the Trojan horse of it, you know, Beautiful. that that's going to happen naturally. And I, I said this before, but when you think of a toolkit, 
right? I think we we try really hard to come up with sort of like this race sometimes in the well-being, coaching, spiritual world to come up with like the toolkit or the 15 things you can do to be enlightened. You know, we've all seen the things that we've been sold or tried to sell or whatever. And for me, what I mean when I say all that, like in the process, this is like that toolkit, we're all building a grief toolkit, but you have to, I use this example sometimes, but say you're trying to hammer a nail in. There are many things other than a hammer that you can use to get a nail in a wall. And at some point in your journey, depending on your ability to get to a hammer, your ability to recognize what a hammer is and that it was actually designed to help you do such a thing and with the mm. rebound, all, all of these things, the grip, everything, you are still gonna be able with a brick to do the walls, mm. but like there might be imprints from when the brick hits. So, you know, there's just so much yeah. there where it's like, but you, as you go, you fine tune and you go, okay, like I was using a shoe or a brick, but now I am realizing the value of the hammer. And, and when I'm in this mode, my grounding technique is this, it's, it's breathing. And so it's for you, it's the shape of a hammer now. But for me, my grounding technique is tapping or meditating or getting my feet in the sand and feeling not as big as the ocean, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think that's what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to really encourage people like you are building a toolkit at the end of every week, you'll go, I'm putting this in, this is what it looks like. So this is what it's for. You know, when I get into these traps or when this comes up in my grief, but I'm really allowing you to do it and, and hopefully believing in people to do it on their own for themselves. So it's like, I know there are certain aspects of my life where I am definitely using, I mean, a brick would even be better. I am just using like something that I should not be using to hammer nails into walls in certain points, you know? And then like in another facet, I'm using like the exact type of screwdrivers for every head. And it's like amazing over there, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's just, it's not necessarily, again, wrong or right. It's the gray space of, yeah, I spend a lot of time using like, you know, Play-Doh to try to get a nail in a wall. You know, and it, without realizing that it wasn't really stopping from just being my hand, mm. you know, so and there's there's all how that reverberates quite literally in your body, body and in your being and in your health, you know, how you use certain tools for certain things. So it is there, um, but it, it takes commitment. And it takes commitment and that compassion and curiosity that I was talking about. And um I want to bring this up because actually in that book, The Grieving Brain, she she talks about how scientists have now changed and distinct found the distinction between empathy and compassion and what mm -hmm. the difference is. And there's these three components. And the first one is, is the cognitive understanding that another perspective exists in empathy, right? So we have that and we can have these things for ourselves in grief and for those grieving us around us. But it's just that, that that understanding that there is another perspective, that the person sitting on the other side of the table cannot see everything you can see and they have not had that. And then the second um, is that you have an understanding for that they're gonna feel the way they feel. So even if something happened where we were both up for a job, it's a perfect example that she gives, You know, I understand that you're going to be very hurt and upset and you know deflated if I get the job and you don't. But I also understand that I'm going to be happy and celebrate that, you know, that has happened for me. But I have this, this understanding of your feelings and, and this humanity. And I think a lot of people with ourselves and with others, we stop there. And then there's this third component, this idea of compassion, but it's the actual commitment to take action for someone else's well-being. It's that moving into actually being committed 
to acting on that perspective and that emotional understanding and acting in a way that honors those two things. A lot of people, because so quite literally and scientifically, you can say, well, I'm very empathetic, but never really engage. And you see this so much. It's, it's the difference of why I get to do things like this because I went into the engaging of, mm-hmm. you know, of that compassion. And I think me personally, it's easier to do for others. I love charity work. I would do it for the rest of my life. I, here in Australia in the floods, I've been down at ground zero. I'm like, God, they need to pay a million dollars a year for this. I will show up at every, you know, I just want to help people be a part of community. Like I love that, you know, that's very easy for me to kick into action for others, for myself like we were talking about at 6.45 in the morning in my grief process, it doesn't kick into that true compassion. And so it's almost like a training and a resilience and finding the tools that that actually enable you to be able to kick into that third level. Because mm-hmm. otherwise, it's we talked about this a lot in mental health, otherwise it's all awareness and no action. So I really just wanna mm-hmm. honor what you said and anyone who's listening, because I would be saying that too. We get it, enough awareness, enough awareness. We need actionable tools. I'm very passionate about that as both of you know and mm-hmm. have been in every sector of my life. So I promise that, that, that every week does end in action and forward motion growth in an offering that's active in life. It just doesn't allow me to come on the news or on podcasts and tell you what the 52 things are for you in your individual grief process. My sister and I lost my dad, but obviously the way it happened, when it happened, how it happened, and us being two completely different people with two different relationships with the same person, our grief processes are not alike. I can't hand her my toolkit. It just doesn't work that way. But I can be like, oh, these are my tools. I use this one for this one. Oh, what do you use for that? Oh, and that works for you? Great. You know, and maybe there's a seed planted of like, oh, he's using something that actually has a hand grip and it's meant to hammer nails into walls and maybe that downloads, but it really is your own process. There's no like sort of cattle prong coach that wakes you up every day in grief. And it's like, ah, ah, you know, every <laughs> time you, um, every time you sort of stumble or, or finding your way through something. Hmm. I'm going to throw it back to you, Kyle, but I just wanted to just highlight the, when you were talking about that toolkit bit, you know, I think sometimes people, when they see like the trust the process concept or the, the honoring the journey, it's hard to like visually see it. But I think that, you know, when you were talking about the brick, right, and then you're talking about, you know, using the brick for now, and then going through life and, you know, being conscious of what you consume, and then learning, oh, that person's using something with a grip and a hammer, and then you mm-hmm. elevate to the hammer. It's like, to me, that is the journey that you're honoring, the fact that you're using a brick, the fact that you're, you're, you're trying this and then enhancing it to another tool and then enhancing it to another tool. It speaks to a process. It speaks to a journey um, that you can look back on where I think that like some of us get caught in this idea that I don't have a hammer, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to wait for the hammer you know, and, and, yeah. and, and not look at other things that you could potentially be doing now, which is what honoring the journey is right not just waiting around for a hammer not just waiting around for the perfect ideal thing and grabbing the brick and being like yeah it could work but it probably won't you know throwing it and just waiting for the perfect thing um so i I love how that kind of spoke to the journey you know and what the process actually means I love that you said that because I think doing that, especially for this podcast too, it's like, this is not a new concept. This is not like my IP, like honoring the journey. Honoring the journey is like the most innate historical masculine quality. I mean, like what I'm talking about using a brick until there's a hammer. I mean, we literally went through this evolution as human beings, as men, like that's how it did happen. Mm -hmm. So to have this idea that now just because computers and apps exist, that we will bypass the natural process of experimenting for what works best 
it's just, it doesn't serve anybody. You know, we, we have to go through that trial and error, especially with something that's so specific and almost so invisible between who, who's dealing with the grief and what's been lost, you know? And I've said this and it's, people have found this powerful to hear before, so I'll repeat it, that if my dad had died on another day, another hour, another minute, a different way, any, anything about when exactly that death happened, my grief process would be completely different. It's just what, it's like when you find out, where you find out, what you're going through, when you go into sort of your flight or flight shock moment, which the very first thing in the book is like day one, hey, I don't know if anybody has said this to you yet, but you might be in shock right now, you know? And I think on day five or six, I say, make notes, take pictures, even if you think it's weird. I have pictures of my dad after he's deceased because I knew I was not there. And that one day I would have questions that no one else could answer from my own experience and that I would need my own knowledge to be the expert of my experience. So that there's so much there of like the exact moment when this happens, you can't really prepare for it. And I just feel like this is where it's naturally going to go for people's minds where it's like, well, how do we prepare for grief? And yes, you can show up and do all of the work that you do and be a conscious man and, and be taking care of your mental health and really try to build resilience. But when it comes down to it, it's like, you know a certain type of storm hitting it's it just depends where it hits and if you know how it happens and I think again as awful as this sounds and I hate to be this guy who says it it's the being okay and ready for the not knowing mm. it's not that you get to know in advance um, and I will say that even as somebody who sort of like the Olympics like you know sort of went down every four years of my 20s with a big hard traumatic death that I was navigating, there was no true preparation. It was, it was all so different and so specific around the relationship. And also this applies and the book applies to ev every type of grief process. I call them, you know, uh, micro grief processes, not because I'm measuring the size of them, but because you have to take a microscope because we want to ignore them naturally. But losses of job, like the, what you thought you're going to do with your career and it's not happening, a relationship like, and in some ways, these things are, are even more challenging and you have to get to know yourself even better and set stronger boundaries because the result of what happened feels tangible. Like my, my grief processes were like, no, his dad has passed, his brother has passed. And then there's a societal waiting of like he's now grieving whatever mm -hmm. he does now is and whereas we're having these micro grief processes and I myself was having them with identity relationships you know jobs like everything I mean I was entertainment in LA like I was grieving every time I fucking auditioned like you know it's like mm -hmm. there's a whole process to build yourself up to be vulnerable put yourself out there and then not get it or not mm -hmm. be the right person for it you know we, that is those are all grief processes so I think a lot more of this aligns with someone who doesn't have a story like mine at all, you know, uh, or isn't even grieving a death. Like that's the one thing that's why I wrote it when I did where I couldn't not say anything anymore was the pandemic was the first time where I didn't feel isolated by grief. I, mm. Everywhere I looked, somebody was grieving the loss of something meaningful. It was palpable and they didn't have words for it. And I was like, holy shit, this is my moment. Like, <laughs> yo, you're grieving, you're grieving, you're grief. Like, like it, you're describing grief without calling it grief. But, mm. And you don't feel the right to grieve because there hasn't been in a physical death. Of course, in many cases, there were also physical deaths, but they couldn't, the work from home, they were grieving office life and company culture and connecting. And, you know, it's, it was just, there was no, nothing else to call it other than grief, but we just were not there to, 
to do that. You know, mm -hmm. society wasn't, that's not how we're trained. And it's, it's so in that way, I have so much compassion and literal compassion at taking actions for others to be able to, you know, in that scientific sense, um, for people to acknowledge those smaller grief processes, because there's something in us. Listen, if I could just drive somewhere and convince my dad to be my dad again, you better believe that I'd be putting some miles on my car <laughs> and going to the ends of the earth to do it. And so we have that when we, we've all been there, you break up with somebody and it's the it's not permanent the loss isn't permanent you think if you change if you do something different if you show up a different way you can get it back and you can get rid of the feeling of grief and so sometimes that's where you have to experiment and be way more compassionate and way more kind because you're not up against a hard wall everyone who's grieved a loss will also know as i say this that there are long nights of the soul where you don't care how ridiculous it is i've made deals with god like screaming you bring my brother back you put me in the ground i don't know the difference that's a deal you take this deal like i mean i mean it like screaming and crying like you know you can't skip the bargaining um of it but you know it's just yeah it's 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 we will do anything to not feel these feelings you know so sometimes it's a lot more difficult when it seems like oh well i can convince my job to hire me back i can convince my ex to just be with me so i'm not someone who gets left you know these these micro grief processes again not measuring the process it's not in relation to my deaths you know mm -hmm. or but it's something that we need to take out a microscope and get curious about and stay kind with ourselves about but also just acknowledge that like fuck yeah i'm grieving like i i this is full-on grief and my mind is doing a dirty trick and telling me that if i just get them back the grief goes away you know or if i just change the circumstances and so Sometimes I really don't know, you know, I see the way people look at me when I tell my story. And sometimes I just don't know who's better off because in some ways we've all dealt with grief. Mine are very tangible. They're almost movie-like. People understand that's the worst fucking thing ever. I don't want that to happen to me. They tell me, they go into shock and they literally say things that I wish they would not. <laughs> like, you know, and it's a beautiful, it's the first chapter of the introduction, but it's like, it's a beautiful, like resilience response of deflection to be like, that could never happen to me. You know, that that is impossible. I can't believe you've gone through that. And it's and sometimes I'm sitting there and I can compassionately look back at people and be like, you have no idea how much you're grieving and not honoring it and how much space that's taking up in your life because society hasn't said that you need a funeral for that breakup or you get flowers and casseroles and condolences like for what you're going through. Wow. So it's it's there, you know, we're all, all dealing with it and and now we live in you know we, we even immediately tried to go to pandemic to post pandemic those were the terms we started to use the result of the pandemic being over and in the book i say grieving has changed we're in a pandemic possible world our rites of passages have shifted our ability to gather is threatened the way that we deal with this now is so much self-work it is so individual and it's so unfortunate and there will be ways to connect again but to go from well, we don't have to deal with this because there will be a post-pandemic world is, is kind of just putting off the inevitable. We, we now, it's everyone is grieving the fact that a pandemic possible world can exist. They are literally grieving the loss of everything that was meaningful to them in a world where that didn't exist. So we're all, we're all there right now. We all mm -hmm. can experiment within our grief and maybe, maybe there is a way to sort of prepare and experience that if you can apply it, you know, before it is 
a physical death of someone really close to you, just to start to get to know the beast a little bit. So it's not the first time you're seeing, you know, um, that I think that's possible, but then being fully ready that no matter how much you prepare, you know, it's like preparing to fight a forest fire. At a certain point, you have to enter the fire. Mm. You can be as prepared as prepared as prepared, but every fire you're entering a fire that could potentially take your life, you know, like no matter what you, so it's, it's really like that. I mean, you can train and train and train, but when the fire's there, it's that exact moment and that exact timing of how you show up and every decision you make stepping forward into mm. that, you know, even if it's for the benefit of others. Mm -hmm. You said something in there that uh, leads me into the question that I actually have. I was going through the seven stages of grief. I know I mentioned those already, but there I was just from my own understanding of this process because I haven't done my own research, right? I haven't gone mm -hmm. into this space. I don't feel called to or willing to. And I don't know if that's, you know, the similar concept of a man not going to the doctor or whatever it is. It just feels similar in that sense. Like, I just am not going to touch this. And when I was reading through it, they, one of the stages that you mentioned was bargaining which I find very fascinating. And I think you have great context too. And then another stage for me that jumped at me, and I think most men, what is this concept of anger? And for me, through my own, I guess I'll call it my grieving process through my life, I've lost people and I have felt the anger. Now, I want to premise that I simply have only felt the anger, but I haven't really dealt with some of the anger. And there are some other experiences in my past where I still have a lot of anger towards and an example would be when my father uh, and I no longer had a relationship, very angry at him for that. And so that's a part I maybe feel I'm at with the stages of grief. But I think what I would like to know if, if you could offer something possibly for, I think a lot of men who struggle with even just the concept of anger, uh, how did you go about dealing with your anger through the grieving process? And is there, from your perspective, a healthier way of navigating it because for me i think i'm quick to say you know because i'm not dealing with it it's unhealthy and i'm that's probably rings true but i don't think i have the right tools like you said to handle it in a healthy way so how did you go about your journey with the anger process and then what tools would you provide for someone who was going through the same absolutely um and i hear you also acknowledging the stages of grief which is something i hear five i hear seven i hear six so also for anyone listening i think it's it's important to also say that when Kubler-Ross back in, I believe the 60s or 50s, when she wrote the original five stages of grief, she was actually spending time with people at the end of their own lives. So it was also built from that perspective. And then David mm. Kessler gets involved and he brings in this idea of purpose and meaning, like adding on the, the additional stages. And mm. I think it's very helpful to go through and understand what the stages were and what they were talking about, because you're able mm -hmm. to identify. In my personal experience, again, I'm in the arena. I don't study grief on masses. Mm -hmm. I just, you know, do get to interact with a lot of people grieving. But from my own perspective and from everyone, every human being I've had a human conversation with about the stages, it's that they they all exist, but it's not linear and it's not circular. Right. It, like it, it doesn't happen in stages. And I think because of the way we learn everything else as mm. children, like in science class, like it's not photosynthesis. It right. doesn't go through a process in that sense. They, they all exist. And that's why in the book, I, I, I sort of broke the book into six S's that the strongest 
parts of my grief that I knew I would have to grapple with both individually and collectively in order to be where I'm at today. And, you know, the first one starts with silence, literal, just this learning to live in the silence of the reality of what's happened. And the final one is the show up. But in there, the second one is called the swirl. And I talk about this a lot. I actually posted on social media like six years ago, I just sort of lost it one day, or to be honest, I found it. Um, I post this whole sort of rant about what it's like to be a man and be in your 20s and you're supposed to, you know, and you're dealing with this entire swirl of not wanting to be here, but so desperately being afraid of death because you've dealt with death. And it's just, it's, it's all of the stages all of the time and you're just identifying your swirl. So like literally like McDonald's where you go and get the soft, you know, soft, what is it called? Soft freeze. Soft cone. Um, soft cone, yeah. Um, which is like such a beautiful part of childhood for me at least as well. 100%. Um, but you know, it's, it's that swirl and imagine like now you're adding like, you know, up to six flavors and they can be happening at the same time. And you can be in acceptance around certain parts of the grief process. I, I really love using both my brother and my dear friend as an example, because they both are sorry, my father and my dear friend, because they both involve PTSD during grief. And so there was an element of me just dealing with my father's suicide or what happened in terms of the accident of how my friend passed that I had to deal with long before I ever really got to grieving the relationship with either. I had mm. to deal with the front facing trauma, you know, capital T trauma. So there's this thing that can happen where you can start to find, you know, acceptance, but be really angry about something else. And, and it does I don't want there to be not a sense of relief, but when it comes specifically to anger, of course, I'm nodding like heavily when you talk about that, because that is just something that I think is a constant commitment, especially I'm not, I don't want to generalize because I think, I think it is anger is gender neutral, but we do see by the numbers and, and just by, you know, you guys know through my mental health startup, I talked to thousands of men and was a part of their journeys and, you know, anger is this beast, this invisible, very visible beast that, that men specifically really are challenged by. And again, it, it sucks for me to be saying this because I just want to give like this quick fix, but that is something that just has to be tended to like a baby. It literally is a baby. Think about it. It's having tantrums when it it's wants a temper something. tantrum. Yeah, yeah, it's literally right. a baby. So to think, oh, when will this baby not need to be coddled? When will this baby not need to be fed? When will this never? even in age when they can do it for themselves, but they will never not need that nurturing, right? So it's like the same way you think about it is that also just, and I love what Brene Brown's doing with Atlas of the Heart and just talking about emotions in a different way. It is my new dictionary or my new Bible. It sits there and I've committed, I've actually wrote a, wrote a blog about this. Anyone who's reading my book, I would get that book and just have one emotion a day. Don't binge that one either. This is like a process of going, okay, how does anger show up in my life in all the different ways and how eloquently she, she really flushes out the emotions. Again, I looked behind my shoulder for support and there was her book. And it's like, okay, good. I don't have to write all of that into mine. I don't have to, you know, there are complimentary things. Um, but yeah, anger, I mean, to this day, I'll be really honest, guys. Like I, even when the book came out, I... I had nothing but support and love from everybody around me. And I didn't get the response that I wanted from somebody close to me, one person, and the beast was out, you know? The, and it was like a crying baby. Like I look back in retrospect, I'm like, you child, like you child, why? Like, and, I, and most of the time I have the, you know, I find the grace and integrity to not immediately respond with my anger or include other people in it. But it's just, it's just, 
this much of a difference whether or not you do that, right? So it's that delicate thing I think of understanding it's natural, but then that quick follow-up around that awareness, the action of taking accountability though, and the way it was expressed. So what I found that you can do with apologies and what I'm trying to do for myself, because I'm a bit of a people pleaser, especially, you know, with how many relationships that I have and I really try to maintain and stay deeply connected is you can apologize for the way that it came up, but not for the seed of how you were feeling, you know, and you can still recognize and acknowledge that part. Yes, what I said and did was childish and I'm embarrassed by it. However, the seed of this issue was hurt, deep, deep hurt and the wanting of love you know, and that's very human and, and I hope very understandable. And I hope mm -hmm. also brings people not only into empathy, but into, like we said, the action of compassion, you know? So, and we have to do that on both sides when anger shows up because we're, it's so quick to end up in one of the other S's, which is shame. Um, and there's so much shame that obviously involves in grief. Um, but yeah, it's, it's that very delicate balance of acknowledging it, knowing that it's completely human but then also like really having accountability on the way it's showing up, what the upkeep is. And, you know, and I, I will say guys, like, I mean, in the darkest days of my grief, I blamed a lot of my angry outbursts on drinking, but did I stop drinking? No. So mm. was I taking accountability, you know? And, and it wasn't like every time I drank, I got angry. I mean, we were playing, you know, Russian roulette. It was one in nine, you know, and I didn't want to give up the other eight, fun nights of being in my 20s I'd already given up so much but one in nine times my eyes sort of went black like a super <laughs> normal movie and you're like you're like wow I'm I want to push back tonight and it would take one person just mm. one person to I lovingly say to my younger self to give me permission I was never given permission but <laughs> I understand young Addison's perspective around what was going on the victim mindset I was operating in and mm. how fucking easy it was to just go off that you were almost looking for that you you don't even know moment you know what's going on here so I think you've got hope you've got grief I think especially for men and just for people in general the anger is this again it's a it's a baby beast which means like it, it almost needs the nurturing you know maybe my next book is just going to be called like <laughs> I think there's already a fucking beast book so I can't do that but it's <laughs> JK Rowling's going to come for me I'm like I'm the non-fictional boy who lives look at these fantastic beasts so I fair. haven't even read <laughs> that book but um but yeah no it's um I think it's just something to really god really get curious about mm. and compassionate about but not in a way that is excusing behavior without accountability. It's like, I feel like I'm like talking to myself. I'm not talking down to anyone listening. I'm literally reminding myself that it's like, you can't go so far to one side where you're like, oh, you're human and you've been through a lot. I forgive you and I self-love you. You know, it's fine. It's like, well, no, other people were involved. Your anger had an energetic value that's been put out into the world. You know, what does making amends with integrity look like mm -hmm. so that we're not finally into a shame spiral, but we're also still actively involved in making that men's um, grace and integrity are, are, are hard to bring into everything. But the more that I try to bring them into everything, the freer I am. And there's less of those outbursts, those angry moments, those, you know, mm -hmm. those times where you're like, I don't know what happened. I saw red, you know, right. Um, but yeah, it's, yeah, it's hard. You can't call the shots. 
you know, you can't, I wish out of all of this, we could just say, this is how you call the shots and you'll be ready. And you'll, you know, you can show up as this fully woke enlightened person who never reacts to anything, but it's literally the purpose of us being here is not calling the shots. It would be very boring if we, if we just knew exactly mm -hmm. what was coming and, you know, mm -hmm. it'd be funny though. That's actually good. We should do like a, a spoof clip of that. Like us in a control room <laughs> being like, all right, they're on the move. Like this person is going to come and attack your Achilles heel. Your emotional Achilles heel is about to be attacked. Are you ready to not react when they tell you you are the garbage you believe that you are? Are you ready? You know, it's like, uh, God, I wish like people above, people below were like, dude, they're coming for your Achilles heel. You unworthy bastard. Like, you know, it's like, it's like, you don't even know, you know, it's just mm, God. Well it's, said. It's uncomfortable, but it's a lot of that, I think, is a reflection. And, and um, you know, I love that you brought up the example of your dad. And I really, I really feel for that. Because like I said, if, if there hasn't been a physical death, you know, there's this whole other element that, you know, you could still make it right. And even with my dad and dying by suicide, people have very conflicting views about that. I don't. Um, but there, I could see how if my dad was still living, there could be this, I'm waiting for you to make this right. And mm -hmm. so in essence, like that idea of acceptance, however, it falls into your swirl. It's very difficult. Like I said earlier, when there's an asterisk, there's a variable, there's another human being, another fully flawed person on their journey who could come back. And, you know, I just like, it's so funny. Cause like, I try to talk so much about grief. And then if you just go back to the basics, it's like, being ghosted and trying to get your toxic ex back. It's literally like that times a hundred, you know, or not times a hundred because sometimes those have been worse than anything, but it's just, <laughs> yeah, true. You know, if you understand, like, I think everybody kind of is nodding me like, oh yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's, you know, but it's different when you're in a toxic relationship with something that you cannot change on a finite level. Mm -hmm. you know, that variable, I think really shifts things up and it makes a lot more room for, for also like a different type of anger, an anger that's directed at someone who's still living versus being angry that someone's not there, mm -hmm. you know, and there's a different type of guilt. And this could be another whole podcast of like expressing anger at someone who's no longer present to respond. There's a lot of guilt yelling at your dad and calling him a piece of shit in a moment of grief and for not being there or missing, you know, you, you know these events in your life, and then the silence that follows, mm -hmm. and the guilt of not of not being able to, not giving them the chance to respond, while not being able to compassionately and healthily be like, okay, but this is natural. I need to express this. Like I am angry. Like mm -hmm. you know, so there's a lot there. There's a lot there, and that's of course a great moment to to bring in. Again, I'm not a mental health professional. I don't want to be. I never will be. Um, you know, that coaches, mental health professionals, they're all there. This can become very unmanageable. I've used my own mental health mixtape, everything from healing modalities to coaching to therapists to, you know, just everything for different things. Um, and just be aware of when, you know, you're swimming in the water alone and, you know, do the math. Like I wouldn't be able to swim back to shore. I came out here without, you know, a coast guard or a boat or, you know, start to be aware of that. And when do you need help? And is someone available to throw a life raft? Um, that's also not a peer and that would not be debilitating for them to try to, to really help you and serve you. So it's, it's finding, you know, sort of the balance of that. And 
I don't know, I say that lightly knowing that the DSM has put prolonged grief as now a psychiatric disorder in the book this week. Um, they, they, for, they did not put prolonged love in there as being a problem, but prolonged grief. Um, I don't really want to get into it. I'll let other people just, you know, decide. In some ways, it's very nice that it's being acknowledged what grief can, you know, really do and how it shows up. The idea, though, that grief should have ended at a certain point and it is now a prolonged disorder is something that mm. I would really invite everyone to compassionately figure out for themselves how they feel in that identification. Mm -hmm. um, and, and if it truly serves them or not, if it serves you, wonderful. Continue, pass go, mm. get $200. If it doesn't, then don't, you know? I appreciate your open narrative there because both Anwar and I are both shaking our head like, nah, like that's, there's no way that mm -hmm. that could be identified that. But I think you put it so eloquently in that if it does actually serve you, then that is your truth and your answer. And that is perfectly okay. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's that, it's that awareness action piece. If you're going to patholo pathologize it, it's a mm. hard word to say, um, then also immediately taking the action of normalizing it. Right. That isn't, you know, because pretty much everybody's going to get, would, could anybody could go into a doctor who's lost someone and check those boxes, Right. you know? So it's just something that you have to be, I mean, I've done every mental health checklist ever. I've been hospitalized. I've you know, self-admitted myself at points. I've been suicidal. I I know as someone who's taken tests my whole life, the way that this multiple choice pans out when you're dealing with symptoms and, you know, so it's like, again, just lovingly and compassionately always approach those things. Um, and so the last time we talked, I'm such a, I'm still such a big fan. And I put those emotional fitness check-ins every week of the book as well to remind people that you don't want to go in anywhere just talking about the two worst days of a month. Be aware of how you were feeling throughout the entire month. Put the, the real words and understanding that come from reading Brene Brown's book and, and enhancing your emotional literacy. Put words around that every day so that maybe there can be a focus on, well, what was going well on the 26 days rather than you coming in here and me specifically asking you about the two days that were unbearable. You know, is there, can something be lent from the days where you're noticing how you're feeling and, and the emotional fitness is, is there, you know, mm -hmm. you're flexing your muscles, you're doing what's right. So it's, it's all there. And whatever, whatever anyone else's mental health mixtape is when it comes to grief or just in general, play it, jam to it. Like, I'm just happy that there's a tape and like, we know we're slowly building a compilation of things that work for people. I never will judge or say what's what, or, you know, who should be diagnosed or how or medicine or not medicine done it all been it all been through it all you know it's all in the come through I'm not again coming back or coming out into like oh this like woke idea but it's just be careful and, and just knowing what that mixtape is and never being afraid to change out a song you know or change out a modality or get mm -hmm. a different speaker or stereo system I'm going to stop with the metaphors now guys <laughs> <laughs> well you can metaphor us all day long we uh we know and we appreciate it oh. that there were so many in there in this entirety of this uh, podcast that we are going to go back to and we are going to probably steal to be quite honest with you i won't lie they okay. were good they were borrow the, borrow the, the steal, steal borrow. aggressive borrow. <laughs> come through with it come through it's yours. okay perfect it's yours now. perfect it's And this has been a wonderful conversation, a very powerful mm -hmm. conversation. I think that 
you know, for anyone who's going through those experiences right now, it's, it's, it's very clear that, you know, this would be a great first step if you're looking for, you know, to get the book or you're looking to kind of, you know, get into Addison's world. Um, where can they find you? Where can they find the book, Addison? Where can they find, um, where can they connect with you? What would you, what advice would you give to someone who, who needs this right now? Yeah. Um, so mygriefclub.com is something I've just made and I'm slowly building out um, for people to be able to go to as far as the book goes. I'm Addison Brazil, uh, Brazil with an S like the country, as my dad would always say. Um, I do want to say too, one of the, the biggest intentions of this book were actually not to put it on the griever um, to go and find it for themselves, especially since it was designed to be something that could be handed to you within the first hours of entering grief club. So I, I I did notice lovingly over the years, the amount of flowers and um, casseroles and condolences that while it helped me feel supported in the moment, a few weeks later when I first sat in the silence of grief was when I wish someone could have stayed a little longer or come along with me. So that's really what this is. And it's really to empower people when, because we've all had that moment where someone loses somebody and you just feel silly saying, just sorry for your loss because you know it's so big and so much is going on. So. That is why I did that. I used to freeze whenever somebody would tell me, which is so weird because I was like the death guy. And anytime somebody would say anything about death to me, I would like freeze and be like, I don't, I don't want to look in your eyes. I don't want, I, I don't want to give you a condolence. I just don't want to send flowers because it just, I know that, that this is only the beginning. So that really is, this really is the answer to that. Um, and so in that I, it's available on Amazon and in most places will ship overnight. So it's literally something when you hear someone's in grief club, it can be available to them starting day one. So it also relieves the pressure of how do I support someone, which if you don't know, I would also just love to say at the end of this conversation, ask, what does support look like for you right now? Mm. Ask, just ask the griever. For the grievers that are listening to this conversation or who have realized they've been grieving for the last two years and didn't know, and I just ruined their lives. Um, <laughs> I would also just say this, this has been a deep and meaningful conversation and just going back right back to just the basics of breathing and taking time after you listen to this episode to just ground yourself and re-enter with the knowledge like we just talked about, like with that come through what you want to take, take what you don't agree with, don't agree with. I would encourage you to not spend energy on what you don't agree with, but to take you know, what worked for you, because it will serve you, not because it makes me more right in the in the outside world, in the other lands. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to make those two disclaimers. And of course, we will, we did mention suicide, we didn't go into it. But you know, the trigger warning will will add in there um, as well, always. And I'm, I'm, I'm very accessible. I'm, I'm so, so excited to start to hear from people because it is a slower burn because the book goes week to week. Um, but please share with me what's working with you, what's, what's not, what's resonating. The book is supposed to be, in addition, a living, breathing thing. I'm already thinking about how the next edition, what I would add, what I would take away. Um, and a lot of that is going to have to come also from Reef Club, what, what worked for people and, and what didn't. And, um, and, you know, some, sometimes I think what I've written is complete crap and I want to get rid of all of it. And then other days I'm giving myself a pat on the back. So I really do love to hear in a very real way, getting outside of the original bubble of publishing a book and having everyone just be a, proud of the achievement. I'm very excited for people to get in contact with me, whether it's through Instagram or the Grief Club website. And um, yeah, let me know how it's going in that, in that action 
sense of that of that experiment um, and how you're experimenting in your grief and what it's leading to. Because um, I think something that's been inherently lonely and really made truly lonely in the pandemic, there can be more community around you still doing this individual process. Um, and uh, if I can be that and provide that through this in any way, then that that's definitely my intention. Um, yeah, I think this won't be my last podcast ever because I just feel like we've got it, you know, and fear of failures coming in about the next one. It's like, no, but this one's good. <laughs> let's, just, let's just give this one to people. But yes, and of course, find the funny always if you mm. can, you know, it's, uh, it's why we're here. Mm. That's beautiful. Addison, we got our final question that we wanted to ask you and leave the audience with. Um, you spoke about younger Addison a couple of times today. Uh, I think you even made a mention of writing a letter back to younger Allison and Addison and sending it back. I want to give you that opportunity now. I want you, I'm going to give you the opportunity to write that letter. Um, what would be three pieces of information that you would go back to a grieving young Addison and say, these, I want you, I want you to consider these things. Um, what would those three most powerful kind of things be for you? And if it's not three exact things, because we've done a lot of structuring, let's get out of structuring. If it's just <laughs> ideas, you can give, you know, ideas, but what would you say to young Addison? Well, first of all, I want to see, see Ryan Reynolds. I know that he listens to your podcast, obviously, but I don't know if you guys have seen the Adam project, his new Netflix film, oh but my God, the so inner good. child has been Trojan horse in a, such a beautiful way that movie wrecked me in the best possible way it oh opened God, me up agreed. and I'm sitting there watching it with my mom who I'm also like kind of mean to because of the grief of my dad not because she does anything but just because I think if I'm mean to her she'll never leave me and it's like I'm watching this movie I'm like fuck you Ryan Reynolds fuck you <laughs> like but also how cool that you know into the childhood stories now this inner child narrative is just like it's like right there and it's got lightsabers and you know all the action around it that it's just perfectly packaged but this younger Addison has come up so much because I just watched that last week and and it just was too on the nose, especially the, I always think of me talking to my inner child and that movie reminded me what my inner child would be saying to me. Mm. Um, ooh, 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 guys, the emotions are right there. Um, yeah, no, like it's just, it really stunned me to go, I'm always going back and making sure and, you know, forgiving him for not being smarter than he was like all this stuff and it's like the reverse of you know what's he saying to you you know and I mean there's it's funny when Ryan says says in that movie and, and hug your mother and not one of those weird side hugs I just started crying my eyes out I've been given that side hug as like a form of defense for eight years you know and it's like it's just it's so weird and it really connected me with so anyway so there's your clip you can tag Ryan Reynolds or just, you know, email it to him because of course you guys know him. Um, but um, also his work with sick kids. Okay, I'm, I'm done. Sorry, okay. Ryan Reynolds, I have a crush on you. <laughs> Duh. We all do, um, it's perfectly okay. I am, I am masterfully deflecting your question. Um, <laughs> what would I say? The three things that I would say? Yes, yeah. Um, I'm sorry for not listening to you. Um, I fully love and acknowledge that you did exactly what was right in the moment, you know, based on exactly where you were at and what was happening. Um, 
and that I know despite what anybody else might have been saying and you know the world has come a long way in mental health and emotion um, emotional health but um, I know little Addison with your green eyes that um, that you were always coming from love I know that and you can let go of, of trying to help everyone else understand that. That's your home. That's love. Oh, my little dude. <laughs> also, I'd be like, bubble wrap and run. <laughs> <laughs> They're oh. all going to die, man. Be nice. <laughs> sorry, sorry. There's yeah, the final money for day, Brown, Ryan Reynolds, multiple personalities I have, but it's like, oh, oh dude, dude, man, steal, steal. Your your record gets gets expunged at 18, man. Take and also I would just be like, go get your little brother and fucking drive and take him somewhere <laughs> before anyone else knows. Because he was a famous cancer oh. patient. You could not get to my brother. It was like, you know just it was competitive mm. um but um yeah no I, I people always ask me that but I really wouldn't I wouldn't tell that kid one thing mm. I wouldn't you know it's so funny because people always ask me that too how do you prepare for grief and I would not even prepare my inner child mm. I would want my inner child to experience like love and wholeness as long as fucking possible I would never tell young Addison what was coming it just it's not meant to happen that way we, we've got to bump up against people in the world and and find how we are with them without this looming idea that they might be gone you know that's childhood that literally is childhood the slow slow understanding that death exists it's you know it's the loss of innocence so i would never um pre-warn younger addison of of anything except bitcoin mm. except bitcoin yeah. Almanac style. All absolutely. the coins. All the coins. All the coins. And I just do charity work nonstop with all <laughs> my coins. That's uh, good. That's good. Excellent. Well, as you can all hear, and, and you've now gotten to this point, you know exactly why we keep bringing this guy back on, why it's his second round in you know less than 100 episodes we've published he will definitely be back for future conversations around grief and masculinity and mental health and everything under the sun because he's got an incredible perspective and the life experience has given him so many tools so addison thank you thank you from the bottom of our modern masculinity hearts to for you to be on here and for sharing and for just being as open as you were that was an incredible episode I cannot wait to listen to that back. Uh, I'm take so much nuggets, but for now, for everyone that's listening, thank you again for being here. Thank you uh, on Addison's part as well for listening to this conversation and just being a part of his journey. Do not forget, go to Amazon right now and get Grief Club. It will change your life as we've already noticed in this conversation alone, it changes ours. Thank you again. Don't forget to subscribe, download this episode. Please rate our podcast. It really helps us reach more men and reach specifically at Addison's message into a further spectrum of the world. So y'all are incredible and we'll see you next episode. What's up, everybody? Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Modern Masculinity Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and we invite you to join us next week as we put out content every single Wednesday. Our goal with this platform is to create a community to support men on their journey of becoming conscious kings. And in saying so, if you took any value out of this episode or previous episodes, please share, download, subscribe, 
And if you're feeling really up to it, go ahead and leave a review. You can follow us at Modern Masculinity. Remember, the K, it's with a K, not a C, to represent the mask that we wear. And like always, thank you for listening. And we'll see you next week.